as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. Welcome again to Christ Central. If you're joining us for the first time today, a warm welcome to you. Welcome to our church. We're so glad that you're here. Or maybe today is the first time in a long time. Well, to you I say, welcome back, welcome home. I'm so glad that you're back at our church. Um, this fall, we're studying the book of Galatians, and we're calling this series, Getting the Gospel Right. And the goal of this series, uh, as the title suggests, is to get the gospel right so that we might walk in line with the truth of the gospel. And the reason why that's so important is because it's only when we're walking in line with the truth of the gospel that we will experience the freedom of the gospel. And it is only in and under the freedom of the gospel that we will truly find rest for our souls and the freedom and the power to love and to bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit in our lives for the good of our neighbors and for the glory of God. Uh, The title of today's sermon is Christian Freedom. If you have your Bibles, turn to Galatians chapter 5, and we're going to read from verse 1 to 15. So people of God, this is the word of our God. Would you please give it your careful attention? For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brother, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Christian freedom, also known as Christian liberty, is a controversial topic that triggers intense emotions among Christians and especially among Korean American Christians. Now, if you grew up in a Korean American church, now I know not all of us did, but a lot of us have. If you grew up in a Korean-American church, then you were probably taught and discipled to believe that drinking alcoholic beverages was at best unwise, unhelpful, and unbecoming of a Christian, or at worst, a terrible sin that needed to be forbidden, the way 
lying and stealing and cheating were terrible sins that were to be forbidden. So here's the controversial question. Should Christians be discouraged or even be forbidden from drinking or are Christians free to drink? That one question stirs up so much emotional intensity among Christians as Christians can hold very strong convictions on both sides of the issue. And sadly, Christians can become very uncharitable and very judgmental towards those who don't share their view, questioning the spiritual maturity, even sometimes questioning the genuineness of the faith of those who disagree with them. So, why am I addressing this controversial and highly emotional topic? It's because I'm a glutton for pain. That's why. No, I actually have two good reasons as to why we're addressing this. First, our text deals with uh, this topic of Christian freedom. In God's sovereign, wise, and loving providence, he brings us as a church to this chapter in Galatians as we work through the book of Galatians. And apparently, God wants us to learn and to think about Christian freedom. And second, Christian freedom is a very relevant, uh, important, and pastoral issue precisely because it is so controversial, because it is so misunderstood. We need to rightly understand what Christian freedom is because we're commanded to stand firm in it. And you can't stand firm in something that you don't quite understand rightly and biblically. Christian freedom is a vital and a significant implication of the gospel and it ought to shape how we live our lives, our daily lives as followers of Jesus Christ. Now, even though the topic of Christian freedom is often brought up in the context of answering this very narrow Christian, can Christians drink and smoke? But Christian freedom actually addresses a far broader, far more important, far more noble question, as I hope to show you uh, today. Now, for those of you that want to further study the topic of Christian freedom when it comes to drinking and smoking, I want to refer you to a paper, a position paper on Christian liberty that our elders and our pastors approve and endorse. And you can find it in our church center app. Go there, uh, go under the Sunday bulletin tab, and you'll find our position paper there as a PDF file. You can go ahead and read it and study it later on today if you want to. Uh, Today's sermon will be structured around three questions. First, what is Christian freedom? Second, how do we not lose it? And third, how do we not abuse it? Okay, those three questions. First question, what is Christian freedom? In verse 1, the Apostle Paul uses the imagery of slavery and freedom to describe the Christian life or to describe a Christian. We were once enslaved, but we needed to be set free from our slavery. And so Christ came to be our liberator, to be the one who would set us free from our slavery. And so our conversion can be described as an act of emancipation, right, by Christ. The moment that the Holy Spirit gave us faith to believe in Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord was the moment that Christ set us free from our slavery, And our Christian life can now be described as a life of freedom. No longer a life of slavery, but a life of freedom. So to be a Christian means 
to be set free by Christ and to live in the freedom that Christ has given to us. Good enough. But what were we enslaved to? What did Christ free us from? What did Christ free us for? What is the nature of the freedom that Christ has purchased for us? The Westminster Confession of Faith is a historic and theological document that our church, along with our denomination, uh, the Presbyterian Church in America, affirms as an accurate and faithful summary of biblical teaching. And the issue of Christian freedom, Christian liberty, is so important that our Confession of Faith dedicates an entire chapter to this issue, chapter 20. And in section 1 of chapter 20, uh, our confession tells us about the nature of the freedom that Christ has given to us, and it is a spiritual freedom. It is not a political freedom. It is not an economic freedom. It is not a physical freedom. It is a spiritual freedom. What do we mean by that? Well, let me read for you section 1 of chapter 20 of the Westminster Confession of Faith. It goes like this. Christ has purchased for believers under the gospel freedom. There's that word freedom, right? Freedom from what? Freedom from the guilt of sin, from the condemning wrath of God, and from the curse of the moral law. He has also freed them from uh, the evil world we live in, from enslavement to Satan, from the dominion of sin, the evil of afflictions, the sting of death, the victory of the grave, and from everlasting damnation. In Christ, believers have free access to God and can now obey him, not out of slavish fear, but with a childlike love and a willing mind. The movie uh, Annie is a classic. I grew up watching that movie um, because every time Christmas uh, came around, it would be playing on TV, right? And you just kind of watch what was on TV. Isn't it weird that none of us watch TV anymore? We just watch streaming services. Is there even TV? I don't even know. But back when I was growing up, TV was all that we had, and you watched what was playing, and our choices were very limited, right? Anyways, uh, Annie, uh, it's a story of an orphan girl named Annie who lived in this overcrowded, run-down orphanage under the custody of some cruel, mean, harsh custodians, uh, and, and they abused her and mistreated her and treated her terribly, while in reality, she was the daughter of an extremely wealthy, powerful, and good man. Over the course of the movie, Annie gets rescued from the orphanage, and she's brought into her father's house, and she experienced a twofold freedom. First, she experienced freedom from her cruel custodians, freedom from mistreatment and abuse, freedom from anxiety and fear. But she also experienced a freedom for, a freedom for love and security and safety, a freedom for a relationship with a father who loved her, who was good to her. She experienced a freedom for a relationship with an authority figure that was not cruel and abusive, but kind and loving a father who truly loved her. You see, the freedom that we have in Christ is also a twofold freedom. It is a freedom from and a freedom for. With his own precious blood that he shed on the cross, Christ has purchased for us freedom. 
freedom from the guilt of sin, freedom from the condemning wrath of God, freedom from the curse of the law, freedom from slavery to Satan, freedom from the dominating power of sin, freedom from the fear of death, and ultimately freedom from eternal damnation in hell. The gospel tells us that Christ has set us free from some terrible and awful things. But Christ has also given us a freedom for. First, we have been set free for a relationship with God as our Father. Just as a five-year-old toddler is free to run into the presence and into the arms of his daddy because he knows that his daddy loves him, so we are now free to run into the presence and into the arms of our Abba Father because we know we're assured of his great love for us in Christ. As safe as a five-year-old toddler feels in the arms of his daddy, we feel that same safety and love in the arms of our Abba Father. And second, we are now, we've been set free to obey God. We don't obey God out of slave-like fear, obeying because we want to avoid punishment or gain reward with our obedience. No, now we get to obey God out of childlike love. As sons and fathers who love their good father. As sons and daughters who know that we have already been promised an inheritance that is undefiled, imperishable, unfading, reserved and kept for us in heaven. We now obey God out of love for God, out of gratitude for God's love for us. Friends, this is the gospel. This is the twofold freedom that Christ has given to us. First, Christ has not only set us free from terrible things, but he has set us free for terrific things. He has not just set us free from awful things, but he has also set us free for awesome things, right? So this is the nature of Christian freedom. It is a spiritual freedom, and it is a twofold freedom. It's a freedom from sin, death, and hell, and it's a freedom for a relationship with God the Father, the freedom to love and to obey him. That is what Christian freedom is. Next question. So how do we not lose this precious freedom that Christ has purchased for us? Well, the way to lose this freedom is by giving in to legalism. So in order to stand firm in this freedom, we're commanded in verse 1 uh, uh, to resist legalism, right? To not submit again to yoke of slavery. Uh, Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 20, section 2, addresses the issue of legalism. It says this, God alone is the Lord of the conscience and has left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men which are in any way contrary to or different from his word in matters of faith or worship. And so, believing any such teachings or obeying any such commandments of men for conscience sake actually betrays true freedom of conscience, requiring implicit or absolute blind obedience always destroys freedom of conscience as well as the free use of reason. Legalism is demanding more than what God demands in his word or demanding something that God himself does not demand. 
In verses 2 to 12, Paul says that the Judaizers were guilty of legalism because they were demanding more than what God demanded. And as such, they were a threat to the freedom that the Galatian Christians had and were enjoying. You see, when it comes to salvation and being acceptable to God, God only demands one thing. Faith in his son, Jesus Christ. That's all you have to do. That's the only thing God demands for you to to be saved and to be pleasing to him and to be acceptable to God, that you believe in Jesus Christ. But the Judaizers demanded more. Faith in Christ was not enough. They demanded more than God demanded because they demanded circumcision. And they demanded obedience to the ceremonial law, uh, like uh, eating only clean foods. You see, for Judaizers, when they heard of Gentile Christians eating unclean foods like pork and shrimp, which we think is amazing and delicious, but they thought was disgusting, they were shocked and offended. And it was inconceivable to them, to these Judaizers, that true Christians could who eat unclean foods, could be acceptable to God. It was inconceivable to them. It's similar to the way some legalistic Christians today are shocked and offended when they hear of Christians drinking and smoking because it's inconceivable to them that true Christians could ever engage in such unclean activities and still be acceptable to God. And so Paul said in verse 1, do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Paul said that to believe the legalism of the Judaizers and to obey the demands of the Judaizers, which were demands that God himself had not made, was to submit to a yoke of slavery. And as the Westminster Confession of Faith teaches, God alone is the Lord of the conscience, and God has left our consciences free from the doctrines and commandments of men which are in any way contrary to or different from his word and matters of faith and worship. What that means is this. God alone through his word can tell us what to believe and what to obey. Pastors and spiritual leaders, no matter how good their intentions may be, they have no right to demand that their followers believe or obey things that God himself does not teach or demand in his word. Because a lot of us grew up in the Korean American church, I want to give us a little bit of a history and cultural lesson as to why, how we got here. In the Korean American church, it was, and it still is, common for pastors and spiritual leaders to demand more than God demands when it comes to the issue of drinking. God demands that we refrain from drunkenness. God demands that we not be addicted to wine. God demands that we not be mastered by alcohol. God demands that, and it's clear in God's word that he demands that. But many Korean American pastors and spiritual leaders demand more. They demand not only that we refrain from drunkenness, but they also demand that we refrain from drinking altogether. And when you demand more than God demands, that is legalism. But why is this particular legalism against drinking so strong and so intense in the Korean American church? There are historical and cultural reasons for that. Let me give you two. First, um, 
the American missionaries who first came to Korea uh, to preach the gospel came during the Prohibition era here in America. At that time, in the late uh, 1800s and the early 1900s, most American Christians believed that drinking was the root cause of so much sin and destruction in family and in society as drinking led to drunkenness and drunkenness led to alcoholism and family violence. And so... The American church, again, in the late 1800s and early 1900s, uh, worked politically to ban the production, distribution, sale, and consumption of alcohol, and that was called the Prohibition Era. And so the American missionaries who came to Korea at that time came not only with the gospel, but they also came with with a deep aversion to alcohol because they saw alcohol as as being the root cause of so much dysfunction and societal ill. So the brand of Christianity that American missionaries brought to Korea was a Christianity where you not only believed in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, but you also renounced drinking. You quit drinking. You renounced drinking just as you would renounce stealing and lying and cheating and committing adultery. Drinking was on the same level as those other sins. Second, culturally, this gospel of believing in Jesus and quitting drinking was welcomed in Korea, especially by the women, because drunkenness was a massive and serious problem among Korean men. And so when Korean men became Christians and they quit drinking, the women were overjoyed. The wives, the mothers were overjoyed because their drunk husbands were finally sober. And they became better men, better fathers, better husbands, better sons. And they rejoiced. In fact, so many Korean women wanted their husbands to go to church, not so much to become a Christian, but to stop drinking. Because they knew that if someone becomes a Christian, they stop drinking. And so... In Korea, at that time, if you became a Christian, if you became a new creation in Christ, then one of the most important telltale signs that you have truly converted to Christ was that you quit drinking, that you stopped drinking. And if you continued to drink as a Christian, well, you were a hypocrite or a fake Christian, right? You see, that is the brand of Christianity that spread throughout the Korean peninsula. And that is the brand of Christianity that the Korean pastors brought with them when they immigrated back to America. And they started those churches, Korean American churches, with that brand of Christianity. And most of us grew up in Korean American churches planted by pastors that believe that. And therefore, it's no wonder we all grew up believing and thinking that uh, drinking was a terrible sin, that Christians are not supposed to drink, just like they're not supposed to lie, steal, and cheat. Even now, I want you to think about this. The thought of a Korean-speaking, Korean pastor drinking is one of the most taboo, one of the most scandalous, unbelievable things that they can think of, right? As crazy as it sounds, Korean Christians would rather have a pastor who is abusive than a pastor who drinks. To Korean-American Christians, a pastor who drinks is a fraud, To them, it is inconceivable that a pastor who truly loves Jesus can also drink. 
the two cannot coexist at the same time. In fact, my old mom many years ago came to my house and my wife and I were busy cleaning our house uh, for my mom and dad to come and I forgot to hide the beer in my fridge. But she went to the fridge, she opened it, saw the beer and she was so distressed, so shocked, so heartbroken that her son was a fake pastor. She said to me, Right? You're, you're a fake pastor. In fact, she was so mad, so distraught, so angry, she left. She didn't even have dinner with us and had come over for dinner. That is the kind of Christianity that a lot of us grew up with in our Korean American churches. Maybe you used to think like that. Or maybe to some degree, you still kind of think like that a little bit. Maybe. I don't know. But in order to stand firm in the freedom of the gospel, we must resist legalism. If a pastor or a spiritual leader or even another Christian, um, even with the best of intentions, demands more than what God demands, that is legalism. And we must resist it. God alone is the Lord of our conscience. And God alone has the authority to tell us what to believe, what to do, what not to do, as revealed in his word. And in the case of drinking, we know what God demands. God demands that we avoid drunkenness. God demands that we not be addicted to wine. God demands that we not be mastered by wine. But God does not demand that we avoid drinking. Right? You see, if God forbid drinking... Then why did Jesus, the Son of God, at that wedding in Cana, turn hundreds of gallons of water into the best wine the world has ever seen or tasted? And if God forbids drinking, then why did Jesus eat and drink so freely that the Pharisees accused him of being a glutton and a drunkard? You know, some of you have a definition of godliness and spiritual maturity that basically says uh, that if you're spiritually mature uh, and if you're truly godly, that you don't drink. I, I think it's crazy that even Jesus can't live up to your definition of godly and being spiritually mature, right? Because Jesus drank, evidently Jesus drank so freely that he was called a drunkard. And so today I want to say to you, if Jesus can't live up to your definition of what it means to be godly and spiritually mature, I humbly submit to you that maybe you should reconsider your definition of godliness and spiritual maturity so that at least Jesus can be included in your definition, right? Your definition can't be so narrow that Jesus can't fit into it. Jesus drank and he was the most godly man there ever was. Jesus drank and he was the most spiritually mature man there ever was. Something to think about. Friends, uh, we are to stand firm in Christian freedom by resisting legalism. And we resist legalism by refusing to believe and to obey people when they demand more than what God demands in his word. And we also resist legalism by not demanding others to do what we say, what we want them to do, when what we say is not based on God's word. Now, you may think something is wise or unwise, and you have your right to offer counsel, but you have no right to demand that they think like you, believe like you, act like you. 
Today, I want to say this. If you know you tend to be legalistic and you tend to demand others to conform to your definition of godliness and spiritual maturity um, that is not clearly based on God's word, then I invite you to repent of your legalistic tendencies because whether you know it or not, you are a threat to Christian freedom. You're a threat to Christian liberty. So repent of your legalistic tendencies. And I say that with love as your pastor. So we stand in Christian freedom and not lose it by resisting legalism. Next question. How do we not abuse Christian freedom? The opposite error of legalism is licentiousness. If legalism is the way to lose Christian freedom, then licentiousness is the way to abuse Christian freedom. Licentiousness is simply believing and behaving as if the freedom of the gospel gives us license to do whatever we want, to indulge our sinful and fleshly desires, to do whatever we want without regard to God or to our neighbor. That is licentiousness. Uh, Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 20, section 3, says this about licentiousness. I'm sorry, before we do that, let's look at verse 13. Paul warns us, only do not use or abuse your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. The Confession of Faith, uh, section 3, says this. Those who practice any sin or nourish any sinful desire on the pretext of Christian freedom destroy the whole purpose of Christian freedom, which is that having been rescued out of the hands of our enemies, we might serve the Lord without fear and in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our lives. In order to stand firm in our Christian freedom, we must not only resist legalism, but we must also resist uh, licentiousness. We must not misuse or abuse Christian freedom as a pretext and as an excuse to do whatever we want because that is to miss the whole point of Christian freedom. Listen, Christian freedom is not the freedom to do whatever you want. It is the freedom to obey God. Christian freedom is not the freedom to sin. It's the freedom to serve. Christian freedom is not the freedom to please yourself. It is the freedom to love your neighbor. You know, Christian freedom is not really about the freedom to ask that narrow question, can I drink as a Christian? It does answer that question. It's important. But that question is so narrow, right? Christian freedom seeks to ask better questions, broader questions more encompassing questions, more noble questions. And those questions are embedded in verses 6, 13, and 14. And I want to read for you from the NIV translation because I like the way it says it. Verse 6 says, according to the NIV, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Verse 13 says, rather serve one another humbly in love. Verse 14 says, the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Friends, if the purpose of Christian freedom 
is faith expressing itself in love. If the purpose of Christian freedom is us serving one another humbly in love, if the purpose of Christian freedom is for us to love our neighbors, then Christian freedom leads us to ask far better questions, such as, in this situation, what does faith expressing itself in love look like? In this situation, what does uh, serving one another humbly in love look like? In this situation, what does loving my neighbor look like? Listen, if you think that Christian freedom is your license to do whatever you want, with no regard for God, no regard for your neighbor, and you don't care if it's sinful or not, you're going to do whatever you do because you're free in Christ to do so, um, you're guilty of licentiousness. And you are a threat to Christian liberty just as much as the legalist is. You don't understand Christian liberty and freedom. So to you, I want to say, I invite you to repent of your licentious tendencies to abuse the freedom that God has given you in Christ because you are a threat to Christian liberty just as much as the legalist is. And there I did, I got to offend both sides. I got to offend the legalist and the licentious, right? Because I'm calling both to repent, all right? I offended both. I'm an equal opportunity offender and that keeps me safe. So what, let me wrap up with this. As I close my sermon, I want to say two things, okay? First, to that narrow question, does Christian freedom mean that Christians are free to drink and enjoy alcoholic beverages? And the short answer is yes. Christians are free to drink. They're not free to get drunk, but they're free to drink. And in fact, I would say this, Christians are free to drink and free not to drink. So if you drink, drink to the glory of God. If you don't drink, don't drink to the glory of God. But whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. And what's really important is, especially in a context like our church, let's not judge one another if we hold differing opinions. So if you don't drink, don't judge that brother or sister that does drink. Or if you do drink, don't judge that brother or sister who chooses not to drink. We are free in Christ to drink and not drink, but we are never free to condemn each other. We're never free to judge one another. We know that's sin. So let's refrain from that. But I don't want to end my sermon today by addressing that narrow question of are Christians free to drink or not? I want to end by asking the broader, the better questions that Christian freedom asks as we live our daily lives right here in Northern Virginia. When you're at home, when you're at work, when you're driving to work, when you're in public spaces like restaurants and gyms and, and markets, when you're playing sports, when, we, when you're with your boyfriend or your girlfriend, uh, when you're serving at church, when you're just hanging out with people, no matter what situation you find yourself in, no matter where you are, Christian freedom means you get to ask better questions. In this situation, What does faith expressing itself in love look like in this situation? What does loving my neighbor look like? Uh, The other day, I watched a TikTok video because I'm trying to get cool. But this uh, video was was moving. 
An old white woman knocks on the front door of her neighbor, a black man, and she's complaining to him about the rope lights that he set up in his backyard. And she's saying that it's bothering her. She can't go to sleep because the light comes in through her windows and she can't fall asleep. And so she's begging this black man to, to turn his lights off at like at 10 p.m. But the black man says, we, we've already talked about this. The, the cops came and they verified that the rope lights aren't shining into your windows. We've already discussed this. My lights don't bother you. I have every right to keep my lights on. But then the black man did something um, remarkable. He said, you know what, Charlie? I'll turn them off for you at 10 p.m. And maybe what you need to do, maybe what you need to do is when you get lonely, come over, have some food, let's talk, have some wine. And in that moment, that angry old woman softened. She got emotional. And you're able to see what she really wanted was not for the lights to be turned off, but she wanted and needed was love and friendship. You know, that black man could have insisted that he had his right to keep his rope lights on. He had that right. He could have just ignored her. But instead, he asked... In this situation, what does loving my neighbor look like? Now, I don't know if that man was a Christian or not. But what he did is what now every Christian has the freedom to do. As Christians, we have now the freedom to ask. In this situation, what does faith expressing itself in love look like? In this situation, what does loving my neighbor look like? And the reason why we have the freedom to ask that question is because of what Jesus first did for us. Jesus, though he was God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, laid aside all of his privileges and all of his rights uh, as the Son of God, and he took on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. Jesus humbled himself becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And Jesus did all that for us. Because Jesus loves us, he put our needs ahead of his own. Because that was the only way that Jesus could save us and set us free from sin, death, and hell. And when we see Jesus doing that for us, because of his great love for us, we now have the freedom to act like Jesus, to use our freedom no longer for our own personal gain, but to use our freedom to love and to serve our neighbors. Christ Central Family, this is the precious freedom that Christ has purchased for us with his own blood, the freedom to love one another. Christian freedom means that we now have the freedom to be kind. We now have the freedom to be loving. We now have the freedom to be a people who love well. So Christ Central, may we rightly use our Christian freedom to become a people who loves for the good of our neighbors and for the glory of our great God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for setting us free from our bondage to sin and self. 
guilt, fear, and hell. You have set us free from all of that, and you have now set us free to be a people who love, to be a people who serve, to be a people who worship God, to be a people who love our neighbors as ourselves, and thus to live the blessed life that you've called us to live. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for this amazing freedom that you have purchased for us by your own precious blood. In your name we pray, amen.